1: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
2: As you practice each skill,
3: the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
4: CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it, most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point, and there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
1: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree.
2: Follow the Profit is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. So employers and employees face many challenges, including this one. I think I'm facing this today. Motivation. Employers want employees to have more of it. And of course, employees are looking for employers to give it. Well, we're going to look at one way that satisfies both. Plus, if you ever wanted to know about a simple product like the donut, and how that could turn into a multi-million dollar business, we're gonna to talk to the former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, the man who made Dunkin' Donuts into what it is today to get his lessons learned from making the tasty pastry. I'm David Grosso, and you're listening to Follow the Profit. As always, we're not here to be a motivational get-rich-quick show. We're here to deconstruct what's actually going on in the economy, politics and finance so you can use your money to help you follow the profit. For those of you who like making donuts, the recipe is of course very simple. Water, yeast, flour, let it rise, shape it into the donut, throw it in the oil and voila, there you go. And what about those of you who want to go into the donut making business? For that, we have a special guest. He grew up in a family that ran restaurants, including Dunkin' Donuts. And when he graduated from some very notable schools, Cornell and Harvard, with degrees in the restaurant industry and a master's of business administration, he became the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts at the age of 25. Real curious about that. I don't think that would be possible today. And for the next 35 years, He grew Dunkin' Donuts into an iconic brand that forever changed America. My guest is Robert Rosenberg. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Terrific, David. How are you? Good. So you grew up in this environment. Your parents were in the business already. How did you know that you wanted to follow into their tracks?
6: I sort of virtually grew up over the store. When I was just nine or 10 years old, my father was an eighth grade dropout of school and like, Uncle was a CPA, formed a business called Industrial Luncheon Service. These were the trucks that went around to factory sites, small office buildings, construction sites, served coffee and off the side of a truck. And it started very modestly in a a little one-room commissary in a part of Boston called Dorchester. And after school, I would start washing coffee cans. And over the years, as I grew up, I took on increasingly more responsible jobs. But I grew up in the business. Grew to love it, really uh, idolized my dad, who was, despite his his not too much proper schooling, was really a dyed-in-the-wool entrepreneur, bigger-than-life kind of guy. And it was my desire to join the family business. But (laughs) after many different jobs and going to hotel school and then ultimately the Army and then ultimately graduate school, when I came out of school in 1963, I had no idea that I'd be asked to helm the business at age 25. That was not what was in store. What I thought I'd be doing was joining the company, trying to find a place for myself where I could add value. It's a long, complicated tale as to why a healthy 48-year-old dad would turn to his green, I'd have to say somewhat cocky, son, fresh out of business school, and ask him to take over the business.
2: So 25, you're the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. What was Dunkin' Donuts like back then in the 1960s?
6: Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. My father and my uncle had this industrial feeding business. They had 150 trucks and six depots all around New England. And around the end of the 1940s, after the war, vending machines started to come on the scene. It started to put a dent in this industrial feeding business. It was more convenient for people to stay inside the building, rather than to stand outside in the cold or the rain. They'd get coffee in. And in a... attempt to try to keep their business alive, the baker and their commissary said, you know, down the street there's one donut shop that's doing more business out of the one retail store than from all of their 12 trucks that sold wholesale donuts around Boston. And that was just enough of an inspiration to give rise to the partners to say, well, maybe we should diversify to keep our business dreams alive. And they decided to open a donut shop in 1948 called the Open Kettle. It was A little stucco store, they had great donuts, great coffee, committed to the very best products, but no one could really see inside what was going on. And the store opened about $1,000 a week, probably no different than the other 1,500 donut shops that existed in Massachusetts at the time. And by happenstance, serendipity, which plays a role, I think, in the creation of all businesses, they got a chance for a second start. The guy across the street was a band leader. He also opened restaurants, and he was going to open a donut shop to compete against the open kettle. Quickly, the two partners hired the architect that was going to do the job for this guy across the street, this prospective competitor. They ripped the store down. They decided to change the name, open up a California-style fishbowl effect where you could see in what was happening, see customers in there around the question mark counter, drinking their cups of coffee. Seeing the cases loaded with donuts at the time it was 28 varieties and 1950, the open kettle had closed and a reopened Dunkin' Donuts, which better told what was going on inside open, not at a thousand dollars a week, but at $5,500 a week with donuts selling at 50 cents a dozen and, and coffee at a dime. And, and those are heady sales. And that was the beginning of what was to become a donut empire. But it was a result of the second and later, even I would say, the third try at launching that business that we really got started. Unfortunately, the partners didn't get along. What happened just before I went off to college, my father bought my uncle out. My uncle took the money and started a competitive business called Mr. Donut. And you can just imagine the family conflict that ensued and the kind of egos that were at stake in terms of who was really going to get the credit for creating this new, very sexy kind of new way to go to market with a fast food concept. And my father then began to string out a bunch of different businesses. So the company he asked me to helm when I came out of the army in 1963 in business school was called Universal Food Systems. Six or seven little businesses, a vending machine company, a cafeteria company, 15 hamburger stands called Howdy Beef and Burger, some pancake houses, while Mr. Donut, not encumbered by all of those diversified businesses, just had their business And they were overtaking Duncan, So there were 100 Duncan stores in 1963 when he asked me to take over and there were 80 Mr. Stores and the outcome was very much in question. And that was sort of the plate and the backstory of what I was um, basically asked to helm back in 1963. And another part of the story is my dad was so frustrated the fact that his brother-in-law and partner who he had once described as a bean counter was now being written up and given the Horatio Alger Award for his pioneering effects in in terms of building a donut empire. My father was so frustrated at the prospect of losing, I accompanied him down in New York to a private equity buyer. He asked a million and a half dollars for the business. Private equity buyer passed on that deal, and I suspected there were lots of others that had passed on it as well. So the business had been up for sale, and earnings had, had stagnated, and the competitor was at our heels.
2: Oh, my gosh. So you walk into the situation, you're 25 years old, newly minted Harvard MBA.
6: What's the first thing you do? The first era lasted from 1963, when I took over, to 1968. The first thing we did as a team is we sat down and we decided that we were going to exit the other businesses or at least starve them for capital. We're going to focus all of our time and energy on what we consider to be the diamond in the rough in our midst. Among the eight was a brand called Dunkin' Donuts. But unlike when I went off to college in 1955, the first donut shops focused on donuts and coffee, the subsequent management began to lose faith in it, and they began to sell breakfasts with scrambled eggs and and hamburgers and hot dogs at lunch. So the year I joined, there were 26 new stores, all of which were more like diners. So we decided as a team, we're gonna standardize a 20-seat donut shop, we standardized the menu, Basically, you focused you know, on coffee and donuts, the first company to really make coffee its centerpiece. We were going to really deny assets and dollars and time and effort to the other businesses, ultimately leaving those, those businesses. Focus on the diamond in the rough and expand that business. And that strategy worked out extraordinarily well uh, from 1963 when earnings were $100,000 the year we joined. To 1968, the earnings grew to $800,000. We were the third company to go public. In order to keep the company from being sold, because my dad kept wanting to sell it, as profits kept rising. I had turned down a $7.5 million offer uh, in the middle of all that process. The price kept getting higher and higher. The pressure on me by my dad was increasingly intense to sell. But in any event, we did not sell. We went public instead. We had to in order to keep the business from being sold. And what was a company I couldn't get a million and a half dollars and my dad couldn't get a million and a half dollars for in 1963 was now worth on my 30th birthday in 1968. Market cap somewhere as we can, I can't remember exactly, around $150 million. And it was heady stuff. Uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes success can be the biggest impediment to future success. The next five year era from 69 to 73 was a disaster. Oh,
2: no. This is going so well, Bob. What happened?
6: <laughs> oh, my goodness. All the way through business, I found that there was always tension between what I call exploitation and experimentation. Exploitation is sort of to take the business in your midst and keep refining it, making it better, refining and getting it. And experimentation was what was my dad did. He kept spinning out all kinds of new businesses And after the first five years success, I loved the notion that we were selling at 50 or 60 times earnings. So rather than being a focused donut and coffee company, which is what made us so successful as we niched down from what I inherited in 63, I began to expand the vision of the business into a franchise business, I opened up a chain of fish and chip stores. So I figured if I could do so well with one franchise business, just imagine if I had four or five franchise (laughs) businesses. Little did I realize it's complicated, way beyond the capacity of my staff. It was naive, uh, shoot from the hip kind of management. And uh, for five years, we ran into real trouble until finally the board said, we've had enough of you. Uh, uh, we lost in 1972, I think, a million and a million seven hundred thousand uh, dollars, spinning out too many activities, too broad a reach, wrong mission, wrong vision, wrong objectives. And a CEO who was still cocky, untrained, not too much emotional intelligence, kind of guy. And it was luckily during that period of time that I came to my senses.
2: So, so wait, I wanna, I wanna take a pause out of this, this, the story. So, does success go to our heads sometimes, and then we just <laughs> kind of get unhinged and just? Well, I can't go talk on for autopilot? everybody,
6: but I can talk about me. And the answer to your question is yes. And the book and what really got me back and grounded was actually a transformational moment. I was reading David Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, and he was talking about the Kennedy and the Johnson's administration of the enemy's war, and the fact that our administration was being helmed by the best and the brightest Ivy Leaguers, who knew everything, but they weren't going into the hamlets and townships where the war was being waged. They were relying on body counts and information third hand, and the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people were being won by the Viet Cong and we were losing the war. And he said a Greek word, hubris. Well, hubris translated to English means arrogance. And David, honest to God, as I sat there in my chair, I said, Halversam could just as well be talking about me. I was in the midst of doing the very same kind of thing. And I took the message back to the team and we sat down and we decided on a bunch of things. Number one, One of my close friends from business school left because he had lost confidence in my leadership, rightfully so. Franchisees were up in arms and beginning a class action lawsuit because they had lost confidence. We weren't paying enough attention to the business because we were so preoccupied with diversifying the business. And my original reaction was to get mad at everybody, to play victim. And through as a result of that, it dawned on me that this was my responsibility. The leader doesn't do that. A leader takes 100% responsibility. If it isn't working out right, it's your fault. You better figure out why and you better do something about it. So we sat down and we decided a couple of things. Number one, we would apologize. Number two, we would set out a new course and go back to our basic business and get rid of the extraneous things that were leading us astray. And number four, all of us would go out to 100 stores apiece, talk directly to franchisees. We created a franchise advisory council to ask franchisees to come in and help us fix it, which they more than were willing to do. And we formed a board. We provided better guidelines and benchmarks so that when I was about to change a mission or to talk about changing an objective or any of the critical elements that cast a shadow in terms of where we're going to go as a business, that we had much more thoughtful forums within which to do it and people to rely upon. My board members were able. I just wasn't counseling with them. I basically was shooting from the hip, based upon an emotion at the moment, and we balled it all back in and began a new course, a new set of behaviors, a new way of looking at the world, and it served us extraordinarily well. Quite truthfully, after the second era, we moved from strength to strength, and the business does to this very day, decades later. The brand is about to experience its 70th anniversary. It's been going for a long time. But that was a turning point, and, and I thought it was a necessary one. And sometimes you can learn an awful lot more if you can live through it and acknowledge it from failure than you can from success. Sometimes past success is an impediment, at least in my case, it was to future success. It put in me a belief that I knew best without a lot of consultation, an a lot of thought. And when you're leading people, when the guy at the top gets it wrong, you drag a lot of people, create a lot of pain behind you.
2: We're gonna take a quick break here. Be right back.
3: Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
1: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts
7: are the primary cause of avoidable blindness.
1: He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need the result more confident capable surgeons and even more importantly
7: patients who can see
1: explore more stories like dr strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact
6: as someone who lives for politics when a major scandal unfolds it was shocking i have to know what were they thinking
2: So how'd you regain everyone's confidence after that? Because once people turn on you, it's kind of hard to get them back, isn't it, Bob?
6: I think being authentic and really inviting them in to help me in some degree of humility. Uh, I, just being honest, I, I think people are forgiving. They like second chances if you can do it. But I think it really starts with a true acknowledgement and a key understanding of how to maintain trust you know, trust in my view is a critical element. It's at the heart of all successful relationships and absent in all failed relationships. And I became a student of how do you in fact generate trust and how do you lose it and how do you evaluate it in others? So I tried to practice all of those things and I committed myself to a process of continual growth and learning. The fact that I came out of school with an MBA didn't qualify me for a growing business that was continually changing. Every few years, the competition changes, the customer changes, technology changes, and by God, the company and the CEO have to grow and change as well.
2: We have definitely seen CEOs crash and burn before our very eyes. Do you have any feedback for them when they encounter a crisis of confidence? What do you suggest for them?
6: Crisis, class action lawsuits, we had hostile takeovers. I mean, we had some existential threats that going to spell the end of the business. Crisis is a passing activity most times. And I have really three lessons I came away with. The first was to try to be as prepared as possible. I served on a number of public boards, as well as my own. And once a year, we basically would do a risk assessment. We would really list all the potential risks to a business and try to anticipate who had found them before, how did they organize for them, Decide who the team is going to be the best is able to deal with that particular issue. So that's the beginning step. Second step: keep the group small. It almost always in, includes the CEO because these are existential threats to the business, and leave the rest of the organization to run the business on a day-to-day basis. Donuts have to get made. The coffee has to get served. The stores have to get open. We have stockholders to service. So you're a small team that handles the crisis, and everybody else And then the third thing I learned was communicate, communicate, communicate authentically and openly to all people. Their lives are at stake when the business is under duress.
2: So what do you think about the world today, Bob? Since, you know, your career is in the rearview mirror now, right? You know, there's a lot of competition in your space, right? We have Starbucks, of course, you know, a lot of other coffee brands. Dunkin' is trying to, you know, evolve into the times as well. What's your current assessment of the space that you used to dominate?
6: I think that uh, if we're going through a period of tremendous pain right now. There will be, according to the National Restaurant Association, maybe 150,000 out of the 650,000 restaurants in the United States will close. I believe that's true. There will also be a million and a half people that'll be out of work. That also is true. And that's painful. And I think we do need PPP and we do need help in order to get us through. By the same token, I see it as very bifurcated. On the one side, those companies that invested in digitization, which I call the third phase of the QSR, a quick service restaurant industry, and have found out how to touch the customer through direct ordering, online ordering, mobile ordering, mobile pay, home delivery, understand the, the role of the social networking and clubs, build up loyalty, loyalty clubs, customer relationship marketing. Those companies that have emerged through that will on the other side begin to fill the, the opening that exists for all those 150,000 restaurants that close. So quite truthfully, I see a golden era around the corner for those chains that will emerge. They will hire those employees that have been let go. I think that the brands will thrive They've made the investment. They're in the right place at the right time. Unfortunately, many independents will not make it, and they will suffer. Hopefully, they'll buy franchises. They'll find a way to participate in the new order. But I see a new order. For many years now, the quick service restaurant industry, maybe the restaurant industry in total, has been what I see is overstored. The population is growing at 1% or 1.5%. New store distribution has been growing probably closer to 3%. And that's been going on for decades. That's all gone now. So it's a new beginning, there'll be five or maybe even as many as 10 years of of opportunity for those companies that prepared well, that are part of the digital age, because that's what spells the difference. Technology is extraordinarily important. It's a restaurant, but a lot of it deals with technology and the ability to make it more convenient and better value to the customer, and technology is the way to do that. A
2: really important point for our listeners is that there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there And franchising is a great way to dip your toes in entrepreneurship what is your advice for people who are interested in opening a franchise
6: I think it's a terrific question David I totally agree I think it's a not particularly well understood opportunity basically I'm a big believer that for entrepreneurs the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours applies you really have to know your trade be in your industry Know the opportunities, where there are weaknesses and where you can devise a competitive offering that's successful and better than what already exists in the marketplace. Franchising has already done that for a vast number of people. So it provides an opportunity for the franchisor to be able to distribute his goods and services if he has a format that's successful by virtue of inviting in frontline managers and owners who have skin in the game into the game. For the frontline owner who's a franchisee, his risk of failure which could be as high. I read different things. Sometimes some people say 50% of all new businesses fail within the first five years. In some places I read it's 80%. But whatever it is, it's high. And franchising is a mere fraction of that in terms of rates of success. So the, the ability to succeed is a lot higher. And a lot of people think that they're buying a job. And and in my experience at Dunkin', for example, that's the way the business started. But franchisees today own hundreds of stores and are worth tens of millions of dollars so it's not only a pathway to provide for better livelihood for the family i find that it's also a pathway to immense wealth creation and also community importance Uh, i find that many of our duncan franchisees sit beside some of the community leaders in the community on charitable activities and on on civic affairs that are phenomenal now though that said not all franchises are created equal And the method I've always used in my business life has been the critical metric to decide whether you have a scalable concept if you're a franchisor, or if you want to join as a franchisee, is what I call return on investment at the unit level. And for me, after fully loading all the costs, including a pay for manager, if it didn't achieve a 15% ROI, return on investment at least, and I didn't think it was particularly scalable because a franchise concept or any chain is going to open in a bell-shaped curve. And if the average isn't high enough, the tail would get too long, too heavy, many two people will fail, and it will drag the business down. So that with a 15% ROI, I feel comfortable that even on the lower end, if you're not lucky enough to open a high-volume store, you should at least earn a return, 7 or 8%, which isn't the end of the world and still allows you to survive. And on the top end, if you're lucky enough to own a high-volume store, you could be earning 15%, 20 20% return on your investment, which is highly scalable, and you yourself can continue to grow.
2: So I have a question for you, and I've actually written an article about this, and I think it's something that's poorly covered. A lot of the new exciting brands in this country are not franchises. Let me give you an example. Starbucks, Chipotle. Do you think that these companies are making a strategic error or even if they're not, isn't this bad for America? Because we can't have people having a seat at the table, being entrepreneurs and benefiting. Let's get real. Only big succeeds right now. Big brands. We live in a world of big business. And franchises provide an opportunity for a small person to be a part of a big brand. But unfortunately, a lot of those opportunities are closing.
6: How oh, I see it, you mentioned two. Two. There are hundreds, and out of the others are hundreds. So, if I were to chart for you the return on investment at the unit level, my suspicion is I don't have hard data, but my suspicion is that Chipotle and Starbucks would be closer to 25 to 30% ROI. So, they can afford to provide baristas with $15 an hour pay. They can provide for their education. They can give them stock in the company. They can do a lot of things because. They were lucky enough to have platforms and companies that were superior returns, not all franchises can do that. And it isn't required for all franchises for them to be successful. So I don't see very many of those. I see one in a generation that comes along that can do that. For the most part, if you look at the Burger King, McDonald's, the Dunkin's, the Kentucky Fried Chickens, the, the Wings and all, they're all franchising because if you were to look at their ROIs, in my guess, they're hovering around 15%. And if you look at the ones that are struggling down at the lower level, they're probably down at 10%. So I don't want to tend to oversimplify, but that was my metric in terms of how to look at my industry. So you're right, Chipotle and Starbucks can do it on the upside, but there aren't too many of them. You name me a couple others that do that as well.
2: Well, I know Chick-fil-A has a modified structure and Chick-fil-A's are sweepingly successful. My Chick-fil-A here down the street, like I can barely get in there. And somehow they still get me my food in about seven minutes.
6: So- Chick-fil-A is a hybrid, but what they do is they put up all the capital for the store, but the manager has been in the system for years and he ends up owning and pays them like 50% of the gross sales and he ends up with all the rest of the profits. So he is in effect a franchisee, although he's still the store manager. I don't know how they handle, if he ever to leave the business, how they handle equity sales. But they can afford to pay him or he can afford to earn, not to pay him. Out of his 50% share that he doesn't, I think he pays 15% for rent and, and the use of the equipment. I mean, I can't, I can't, it's in my book, but it is still, in my view, uh, closer to a franchise than it is to all a company.
2: So let's talk about a franchise that used to have a stellar reputation and then just is famously gone up in flames, Subway probably the most public-facing franchisable business that I saw growing up. And that hasn't really turned out well. What do you think happened there?
6: A couple of things. Number one, I think that uh, the ROI was on the lower end, much closer, under 15. So people were buying jobs rather than having a real scalable business as franchisees, number one. And they didn't have an organization. They basically used master licensees. And number two, Fred DeLuca died. And the business lost its leadership and its its driving force. So the concept itself was always rather weak. Its product quality wasn't all that good. Its innovation wasn't all that good. But Fred DeLuca was an extraordinary founder and leader through that business. And he kept it going and growing. But as competition grew and other better products came along where they were doing things with better product, better locations, better ROIs, They were taking share away. And unfortunately, in the midst of all that competitive battle before anybody over at Subway could make a change, DeLuca unfortunately dropped dead.
2: Wow, leadership matters. So what's your advice to young people who want to dip their toes in this? Because, you know, you're saying there's still tons of opportunity out there and ways for people to get in on the franchising business. Let's say you're not even ready for that and you don't have the money to invest in in a franchise. Let's say you want to just learn more about quick service restaurants, QSR, as you said. What do you suggest for young people?
6: Go to work and learn your trade, which is what I did. As a kid, I ran cafeterias, I ran canteen carts, I subbed for managers during summer vacations. You know, I knew what food costs was and labor cost, way before I went to hotel school. I ran a, a cafeteria in the American Airlines business building when I was in my early 20s. Basically, I learned my trade. Now, it didn't qualify me to be a CEO, but it did qualify me to be a store manager and that I did know. And I did know the food business and I could move easily between canteen carts, trucks, all kinds of venues, uh, restaurants. And I was confident enough, even at a young age to be able to run them profitably. So, you know, your twenties is a time for a lot of experimentation. If you have an, an inkling and an urge and something appeals to you, try it. And if it doesn't work out, try something else. Uh, you don't always get it right. You know, the beginning of the Dunkin' Donut business started with open kettle, it didn't work. They didn't give up. They ripped it down. They tried something else. When I came in, it was all, it was a diner. It was eggs and onions and, and hot dogs and hamburgs. I had to recreate it again. And it was a third try at the business. So it's a matter of persistence. And one of the most important things in life isn't necessarily brilliance. It happens to be your ability to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Take a punch in the nose and go back and do it again. Understand what you did wrong and try to make it better. So I find second and third tries really work. I don't know about you and I don't know about a lot of other entrepreneurs, but my suspicion is if you look behind the curtain, you're gonna find a couple of things. Number one, you're gonna find people who've tried it two, three, four times, have dusted themselves off, learned the lesson, fixed it, got it better each time. You'll also find behind the curtain, it isn't one person. It's generally a team. If you've got a good leader, you're going to have a, generally a team of complementary souls around you that love each other, work together well, no backbiting, that share common values, and build a culture that's unbeatable, that likes to win, which was my culture, the culture of my company. So those are some of the things I learned. But persistence and keep learning, keep growing. Those are the two lessons I are the most important
2: well you know you've inspired me to try the new cold brew at duncan you know i actually at my apartment in new york they opened one at my back door so <laughs> one day i went out the back door and i noticed there was a duncan there which of course now it's not called dunkin donuts it's called duncan you guys continue evolving uh, exactly. what do you think uh, about the company today you were there for quite a long time bob i imagine it's hard to disassociate yourself with duncan I, I don't
6: i'm, I'm uh, i don't disassociate myself and the company was very helpful uh, in promoting my book, Dave Hoffman this is a, this was the CEO, uh, was very kind to me. And uh, we sent out notes to all the franchisees <laughs> urging them to take a look at the book and the lessons in it and to the history. And I think the company is extraordinarily well run. I, I think the people are terrific. I think during this pandemic, uh, Dave didn't lay anybody off to the best of my knowledge. He kept the family together. He paid the price, did the right thing. It showed the values that that we started have continued on to this day. I'm extraordinarily proud of the job they've done. They moved from strength to strength. So when I left, I was earning 120 million trading profits. I think I think today the company just got sold for $11.9 billion. So here you go, 70 years later, a business we couldn't get a million and a half dollars for in 63 sells in 2020 for That's $11.9 billion. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good run.
2: Yeah, I would think so. (laughs) So if I haven't mentioned your book, of course, it's called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts by, of course, Robert Rosenberg, also known as Bob. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. All the best to you and your family over in Miami Beach, my hometown.
6: Thank you, David. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks, I hope your audience finds it of some value.
2: We're going to take a quick break here. Be right back.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in america
1: ophthalmologist dr strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness he works with a virtual reality training platform developed by fundamental vr and orbis international to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans... Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford.
0: Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it
3: doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person.
2: Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony
5: DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art.
1: You know, I had to like
5: Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-series 4K smart TVs. Head to walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.
2: So when it comes to being an entrepreneur, or if you know one, chances are that entrepreneur is working. Always. Uh, I think I resemble that remark. I'm always working. I love working. But, of course, when entrepreneurs reach a hurdle, they find some way to get around it, right? Right. It's because the business is theirs and they're doing everything they can within their power to make it succeed. And that's the entrepreneur. But what about the employee? Well, employees clock out at five or whenever they're done, right? Or work part-time. So they're in and out. How could they possibly share the same energy and passion as that entrepreneur? Well, one way to do that is actually to kind of recreate the world of the entrepreneur. Give them a taste of being an entrepreneur. The thinking is this, why be surrounded by people that most likely care about just getting a paycheck and you own 100% of the company? When you can let employees share 20%, let's say, and feel invested in the company while you still own a sizable 80%, that way employees have some skin in the game and they get a taste of their efforts and will most likely share the same desire to see that company succeed, because they actually own a little piece of that company. So let's walk you through an example. One writer to entrepreneur explains how he had two passions, cars and IT, information technology, of course. Early on, he worked in IT, studied at the university, and ran a website focusing on reviewing cars and the auto industry, something I love. A year later, the website was doing well, and he needed more of his time while still simultaneously holding down a full-time job. The solution, he thought, well, I'm going to sell the website to another blog and take an equity stake in it. Later, the writer earned his degree and got a great paying engineering job. But despite the amazing pay, he realized that no matter how good he does for his employer, it wasn't going to be reflected in his paycheck. So this same guy realized he had more to give than his nine-to-five job. So the writer quit his engineering job and started working at that automotive blog. But this time, the blog was a full-fledged website that employed more than 50 people. And even though he took a pay cut, the writer knew that every ounce of work that he put into it would pay off, and it did. Eventually, that website was sold for more than $60 million, and the time and equity in the company finally paid off. I think we're moving to a time where entrepreneurship is being recognized as a powerful way to view the world. It's not just a profession. That entrepreneurial attitude, that startup spirit, even big companies have something called intrapreneurs. They basically treat their employees like entrepreneurs and give them a piece of the business for them to control and create incentives for them to succeed. And really, what these big companies see from their intrapreneurs is much more productivity. And their employees are happier because they actually have control over what they're doing and they are being compensated. We all have had that situation. When you're an employee, you always run it through your head. This isn't mine. If I do better, I'm not going to make any more. I don't work on commission. Why should I do any more? I'm going to do what I have to do and then I'm going to walk away. Well, Companies are quickly figuring out that they have to harness that spirit, because guess what? Everyone wins, as we saw in this story. If we design things right, everyone can have skin in the game and rising tides lift all boats. Thanks to all of you joining me as we follow the profit. A big thanks to Robert Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. He told us all about his insight as to how the food industry works, specifically franchising. And he's the author of Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. Shout out to our team of producers, Emiliano Limon, Scott Handler, and our executive producers, Newt Gingrich and Debbie Myers. I'm your host, David Grasso. If you're enjoying the show, give us five stars and also leave a review so others can learn what the show is all about. Follow the Prophet is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: all opinions expressed by david grasso and his guests on the show are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of gingrich 360 or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated by david grasso on this podcast television radio internet or other medium you should not treat any opinion expressed by david grasso as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his opinion david grasso's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable but neither gingrich productions nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such David Grasso, Gingrich Productions, its affiliates and or subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on this website. David Grasso's statements and opinions are subject to change without notice. No part of David Grasso's compensation from Gingrich Productions is related to the specific opinions he expresses. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Neither David Grasso nor Gingrich 360 guarantees any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this Website or on the show. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this website or on the show may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this website or on the show. Before acting on information on this website or on the show, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial
4: Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
2: Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro.
4: Billie's
5: vocals, it was automatic art.
1: You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like